Hi everyone, just a short note before this episode starts. Recently, there's been a fair few people who have gotten in touch to let me know that they've really enjoyed an episode that they've discovered from the past. So, we thought it would be a good idea to round the year out by rerunning three of our most popular episodes. As such, this episode is a rerun of episode 110 where I personally handpicked my favourite pieces of sponsorship advice and insights from our guests from over 100 episodes. Enjoy. Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Regular listeners of the show know that I love hearing from you, the listeners. One thing I have never mentioned, however, is the amount of people who do get in contact, usually on LinkedIn, sometimes on email, and in the conversations, they ask for a little bit of advice in the sponsorship space. A lot of the time, it's from those listening to the podcast who are trying to break into or have just moved into the sponsorship industry, or maybe it's an experienced person who's just having a little bit of a challenge at work around a certain issue, and they just want to see if I've got some ideas that might be able to help them. Now, normally I can give them a few standard pearls of wisdom or some examples that I've seen or point them to an episode or two of this show that I think they might like or find value in. Of course, we do a best of show at the start of each year, rounding up the best clip from each show. But one thing I have been thinking about for some time is creating a little bit of my own personal curated list of favorite insights or pieces of advice from our guests over the years. I've always envisaged that it would be a bit of a, hey, oh, you're new to the industry and want some advice? Cool. Well, check out this resource full of the smartest things some of the best people in the sponsorship industry have had to say on this show. I've also always kind of envisaged it might just become a little bit of an anchor or a touch point for those of you with lots of sponsorship industry experience in a sense that you can always revisit it and and kind of get centered or, or validated or inspired again with your work. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 110, brought to you by Core Software. Whether you are new to the show or you've been a long-time listener, thanks again for joining me as we go inside some of the best sponsorship operations around the globe. I hope all is well at your end, wherever you are in the world. For this episode, there's not a lot of an intro needed, not a lot to set you up for what you're about to hear. Essentially, you're going to get 14 pieces of my favorite insights and or pieces of advice that I've handpicked across our past 109 episodes. As such, let's just jump into it. In episode 76, Catherine Butterworth, Director of Sponsorships, took us inside MasterCard Australasia's sponsorship program. As a brand, you just mentioned about other areas of the business learning from the sponsorship sharing. So as a brand, when you sign off on a new deal or maybe it's a renewal, you're typically not the only one, the sponsorship team who executes all of the assets and campaigns. A lot of the time, there'll be some that go out to digital teams and and others go to media, et cetera. So what's your opinion on how involved those other areas of the business and teams need to be in the negotiation of a sponsorship deal, particularly if they're going to be involved in executing elements of it? It's correct that we have uh, a lot of different like parts of the business who utilize or leverage our sponsorship assets. 
Rather than a level of involvement of particular teams or people, though, it's ensuring we've considered the learning. So because we do work with all these different parts of the business and parts of marketing to activate these properties, as we're doing that, we are sort of keeping track of what's working or what isn't or what questions we're getting or what we're not or what needs we're seeing, what opportunities we're seeing as a result of how something is being programmed. And we keep track of that and we feed that in. So there's always a lead um, on each sponsorship renewal or um, new deal and they, they reach out for those sort of learnings and like opportunities or insights. So we provide that to them. So we're basically collating from our experience with those business units or um, different team members so we can provide that to them as kind of extra context or insight for them to feed into to the deal that they're forming. Rick Conti from Make joined us in Episode 70 and took us inside what makes great physical activations. Now, activations have come a long way from the single white box marquee outside an event like a stadium. We now see activations taking place across digital, TV, during an event, and sometimes, well, quite often, actually, even separate to the actual running of the event. Where do you think the industry sits on the the spectrum in terms of, at one end, sponsorship assets being activated in isolation or even siloed pieces, and at the other end of the spectrum, fully integrated multi-channel activations? Where does the industry sit at the moment, do you think? I think it's still quite broad in terms of um, where the industry actually sits. I think at one end, there's a number of brands that are doing it really well. And this probably comes down to to budget and capacity and resources and things like that. And then there's probably some brands that are, you know, potentially entering the sponsorship space or probably just, just getting their, their feet wet when it comes to activating and probably not as well versed in, in how to leverage leverage those activations as well. So I think it's quite broad at the moment, but in terms of where I think it should sit, every opportunity to to leverage that partnership through every channel at your disposal, I think, is is what best practice should be. I think today with activation and isolation is just it's just not best practice for today's interconnected society. I think, you know, as we know, the data that comes out of research reports each year that um, you know, fans are residing across multiple platforms at multiple times and, and the whole omni channel approach is is really the way forward for brands. Um, you know, we, we see online retailers moving offline and, and vice versa. So I think I think you really do need to be everywhere and I think that's when you're really going to see the best results from your activation is when you can engage with that consumer or the, or the fans across multiple channels at the same time to really, really nail your message across and, and get a result from that activation. I think perception is reality. We had a discussion around this the other day. So, you know, strategic investment into certain channels to really achieve that bigger than you really are kind of perception is um, is quite important as well. So... In episode 72, AirAsia's regional brand manager, Ben Rinja, took us inside AirAsia's eSports sponsorship experiences. AirAsia have been involved in eSports early on. We, we touched on them a little bit earlier on in the show, but AirAsia has been involved in eSports since early on, but not only just with sponsorship, but also in building Malaysia's first eSports hub. What did and does AirAsia see as the appeal or opportunity of being involved with esports early? Because esports is clearly now big and it's probably only ever going to get bigger. But what was the attraction, the appeal, or the opportunity that you saw early on? And this is going to sound rehearsed, but it's only because I've been asked this question several times. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, as you mentioned, AirAsia has been involved in esports for a long time now. We have a couple of advocates within the company themselves who are really pushing the rhetoric of 
of how important esports is to our early consumer base, right? Um, so why did we get involved early is a very simple question. I mean, a very simple answer. The gaming industry is where consumer dollars are being spent right now. Uh, so globally, the trend, and when you look at the numbers of, of what is being spent within the gaming industry themselves versus some other more traditional industries, I mean, I have the numbers here. Video games generate 137, oh, $137.9 a year versus $31 billion, which is for movies, and $19 billion, which is for music. So it literally is where the money is being spent uh, in terms of entertainment, if you will. So it definitely tries, it, from a brand's perspective, it definitely makes sense to just get involved with 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 that consumer base and, and to understand what they are, what, what they like and what they don't like because they are spending the money. And to move on from that, it doesn't actually become that surprising because when you look at it, games live in consumer's hands. I mean, everybody has a mobile phone. There are people who are casual gamers versus professional gamers. There are people who used to be able to only play games together. I mean, I remember back in the days of the PS1 and things like that when networks weren't a thing and you weren't able to play against your friends unless they came over. Now you can literally sit in your own home, message one of your one of your buddies across the world, and you could be playing a game together. So the technology that has happened over the last 10, 15 years of bringing people together through the light, through the through the world of gaming has has revolutionized, uh, for the lack of a better word, the way that money is being spent and then how people are engaging with games. So Airazor is we're we're moving into a very very digital space and we ourselves are trying to become a digital company through the revamping of our Airasia.com website, through the revamping of our ticketing platforms and we want to be known as a digital company that happens to own an airline, if that makes sense. Because ultimately, a lot of the ways that uh, the travel industry is uh, is changing is, is people are not having to go to a sales office anymore. They could literally turn on their phone, book a flight, and be at the airport in an hour and a half. So digitizing your business is, is, is definitely the way to go. And, and gaming itself is, I guess, at the very forefront of that. As a young company, we want to ensure that we, we stay relevant with the youth. Uh, and esports is where our future demographic is is currently living. So, to even though we were the first, I mean, I I, I don't believe that that really matters. It for us just made a strategic made strategic sense to be involved with that because that is where young young future travelers are. So, building a perception of the brand from an early age is important because it helps it helps instill loyalty. And we want to ensure that we remain relevant throughout our target market's entire lifespan. So if we get in there now, for all you know, they, they, will, they will remember us when they are no longer, I guess, young people interested in that specific thing. In episode 74, Alison Tyson, Senior Manager, Brand and Sponsorship, took us inside Nissan's sponsorship management and execution. And what do you find challenging about all that data? Is it maybe not knowing what you might need? Is it too much data? And Is it making sense of the data? What do you find really challenging about that space? I think what brands need to be so cognizant of is understanding the objective behind the data they're capturing. So 
why we're capturing data at an on-site activation, for example, versus why we might capture it as part of our social media campaigns or our digital advertising is so important. Because, I mean, as you say, there's there's data everywhere, right? And and not only understanding why you're capturing it, but what, importantly, what you're going to do with it once you've captured it. So there's no use in, you know, interacting with someone at one of our activations um, at a sporting match and then, you know, really not touching that data and not doing anything with it until six months later when we might have a cracking retail offer in market and we push it out to that audience. I mean, that's just not creating a genuine connection and not utilising the data in the best possible way. We need to we need to understand the data, ensure we're capturing it in the right way and then ensure we're treating that person in an appropriate way based on our level of engagement too. In episode 83, Chris Bayless from the Sponsorship Collective took us inside events and sponsorship during a crisis. So if a rights holder wants to try and retain some income from a sponsorship, clearly as much as possible because it impacts cash flow, what sort of options are there aside from a refund? I mean, you alluded to there around seeing what they can deliver, but are there other options on the table that can be explored? If the approach that you're taking through this process is how do I retain as much money as possible, you're in trouble. The odds are stacked against you quite badly. And that is a common and understandable approach. We are salespeople. We live or, well, we don't live or die by our sales, but we keep our jobs and feed our families by our, by our sales. And so it's easy to think of it in that, in that way. Early on, Brad and I took a step back and I keep, I keep coming back to this as kind of the case study because I want to be clear, this was right for us, but this isn't necessarily what you should do as a listener. You really have to get your legal advice, get your accounting advice, review your contracts, talk to your sponsors multiple times. But anyway, so Brad and I came to the conclusion that only a live event serves the purpose. And so we wanted to reschedule, not cancel. Then we spoke to our sponsors and instead of saying, we would like to keep as much money as possible, how can we keep it? We came to them and said, you tell us how we can be a marketing partner through all of this. You tell us how we can be the best investment you made all year once all of this is done. And if we can deliver, we're going to. And if we cannot deliver, we will give you a full refund no matter what assets we've already delivered on. That's irrelevant. Even though legally it was a defensible position, So if your goal is to keep the money, your primary goal must be to help achieve the outcomes of your sponsors. Sponsorship is a marketing discipline. Marketing is measured in usually in sales or at least the suite of marketing outcomes, not in how much money a property retains. So while that is your your lag measure, your lag goal, that is not how you should approach this philosophically when you're trying to negotiate with your sponsors. Episode 85 saw us go inside the Rajasthan Royals commercial program with their COO, Jake Lushmakram. For want of a better phrase, it's almost seductive, the reach that you can give a brand in India, but really build the brand and the connection with various aspects of the franchise. Can you talk us through some examples of when you've done that for brands? Absolutely. And I I know I've touched on a couple already, but I'll just briefly go through them again. With with Red Bull, we, we talked about Red Bull Canvas Cricket and, and grassroots is so important to us. So when we were talking to them about how we could work together, that just tone resonated with both of us. And it, Red Bull is an interesting one because we're not, we're not the biggest, most followed team in the IPL. 
we've got a very good win record. I think we're third or fourth in terms of overall win percentage. However, we have only won the tournament once. Um, and we are based in Rajasthan, which isn't a you know big metro city. So there are challenges and there are teams with you know bigger followings. However, what we look to do is partner with brands that have those synergies with us. Grassroots cricket was was one of those. And even before IPL, we launched a competition called Cricket Star, which was basically like Million Dollar Arm, if you've seen that film. So we actually launched that before before they did that in baseball to find the next Indian cricket talent. And we actually ended up signing a couple of players who paid for us in the IPL. So it turned out that one of the, the people at Red Bull had actually been part of that cricket star competition. <laughs> um, and and that, that, that link was just amazing to, to kick things off. But they said to us, look, we could make more money if we partnered with a Mumbai. We could get more uh, you know, can sales. But in the long run, we can build a much deeper, more integrated partnership with you that will benefit both of our brands a lot more. And we want to be with people who have the same passions, drives and, and focus areas as us. So, you know, that was fantastic to hear and, and hence why we've been able to build this partnership with JK Lakshmi, our, our Frontier shirt sponsor last year. Again, they had, we asked them what were their aims and how we could work together. They wanted a, a huge amount of visibility. So we said that, why don't you work with us? You um, create a fan army and then you bring that to every, every match we play this year. We will, you know, we'll supply the, the merchandise for that. And then you get great visibility and we get a presence in each of the stadiums. And so they sent about a thousand fans to every match home and away, which gave us a, a fantastic presence, especially because we had the pink jerseys and they got a huge amount of coverage. Because if you've got, whether it's a hundred or a thousand fans sat together in a stadium, if you're in RCB and they're all red or you're in yellow and you're there as this little pink, pink square making a huge amount of noise, you're going to get the, the the star cameras on you, which is going to be amazing for your brand. So that's another way we work well with them. They also provided us billboards all across Rajasthan, which gave both them reach and us reach, which is a great synergy. And then Inox was another one we touched on where they gave huge inventory. Before every movie in an Inox cinema, we had our brand film played. And they also did sort of ticket competitions where we could build our database, which is, again, integral for building our fan base and then engaging with them and giving them that personalized content and feel that the means they grow as a fan and you can monetize them in the future. Episode 88 saw us go inside the agency Fuse with Stephen Hutchison, Managing Director. Speaking of change, there seems to be a general consensus that measurement will get more attention and focus from both brands and consequently rights holders as and I hate to use this such overused phrase, we return to normal, whatever that's going to look like. What role do you think measurement will have or, or how will measurement change in sponsorship over the next, say, 18 to 24 months? If you'd have asked me my top two on the previous question, this would have been number two, actually. So it's a nice follow-on. I think, again, this is another area where we are lacking a little bit and have been for a while. And I think COVID will probably necessitate an acceleration for us to move towards more to stronger measurements capabilities. So I think the change we'll see is that right now, in a lot of cases, it's not a universal truth, but I'd say it's largely true, is sponsorship is measured separately to everything else that's done from a brand in a marketing sense. So they'll, they'll measure their TV digital activity over here on the left, and on the right, there'll be this other report that comes in to show what the sponsorship is doing. It won't use the same data to tell you the result. So that's one problem. We're not 
integrating sponsorship into the overall measurement frameworks that brands have. And that's a responsibility, I think, of the brands to make sure it's implemented. It's considered alongside some of their other channels. But it's also, I think, a responsibility of us as an industry to make sure we are giving the right data to, to enable it to be compared to other channels. And that's, I suppose, my second point on this is that right now, I think we focus too much on outputs rather than outcomes. So outputs are things like you delivered a four to one media return on investment. That's an output of the of the deal. Uh, it's useful. I'm not saying we should bin it altogether, but it doesn't really tell you what the so what test I think would be applied there. Three to one, so what? Like, what does that actually mean? I think we need to go deeper, and that's what I mean in terms of going from an output of a media return on investment. It's just one example to more of an outcome in terms of as a result, this happened. You know, more people came to our website. It could be as simple as that, or more people bought our product would obviously be the holy grail, but. That we just need to focus more on what the output of our of our activity has been. So I think those two things. So number one, making sure that we are considered alongside other channels and can be compared against them. And number two, make to, to enable that, making sure that we focus on the outcomes of our activity and actual impact to businesses, whether that's a brand uplift, whether that's a business outcome, or another metric, as I say, it could depending on what the sector or brand is, it could be as simple as website visits, website traffic, you know, stuff like that. We need to focus a lot more on that stuff rather than some of the more superficial sounds good, but doesn't really mean anything type stuff. <laughs> the measurement conversation can sometimes go on for hours, depending on which marketing function you're talking to. You spoke about there being in an exploratory phase, and we've spoken a lot about change already just in the 15 minutes or so that you and I have been talking. So for sponsorship, what do you think are the top measurement metrics that you see becoming prevalent over the next few years? As a broad brush answer to that, the, the answer would be brand uplift and business impact. But to be specific into those two, so the first one, when I say brand uplift, I mean metrics like brand opinion, brand consideration. But I think at the moment, sort of going back a little bit to a previous answer, I said that we focus a lot on outputs. We say things like people that are aware of your sponsorship have a 23% are 23% more likely to consider your product. Now, that is a piece of data that's interesting, but... Brands, when they're looking at consideration as a metric, if we use that one as the example, are looking at what their overall consideration is. So 23% of fans of a sponsorship that have seen the sponsorship that are aware doesn't necessarily tell them what true impact that's having to their business. So we're doing a lot of work on trying to say, well, okay, let's take consideration and let's look at what sponsorship's contribution to the brand's overall consideration is. So we can say that actually... You know, the, again, it, depending on what data we can get, we can't always answer this question. But the where we want to try and get to is to say, you know, if you if you've got of your audience brand X, you've got sixty percent of those that consider you. We can tell you because of the analysis we've done that twenty percent of that sixty percent has come from your sponsorship because of these reasons. So that's what I mean in terms of we we do provide data on brands that uh, sorry fans that are aware of um, a sponsor a sponsor's activity has a. X percent more likelihood to consider a product than a brand a fan who has not been become aware of that brand sponsorship, but it doesn't it doesn't allow the brand easily to relate it back to really what's its overall contribution to my overall piece. Hopefully that makes sense. And I suppose the second piece in terms of business impact, it, which is which sponsorship to be honest has always been weak at, and in some ways understandably because of the nature of some of the agreements are more brand based activity than business led, but we haven't been able to prove. The, the end impact on sales. 
so I think that's another area we've got to focus on. And again, we've been doing some work with some of our clients on trying to insert sponsorship data into econometric models or mixed market modeling, which actually shows the brand in a scientific way what the impact of their marketing activity has had on their bottom line. And we want to try and take sponsorship into that conversation. Because even if it's brand-led and it delivers consideration, we know that consideration ultimately will lead to sales. So let's try and isolate that where, where possible. As you mentioned in your question, we do have people dedicated to effectiveness. We've got a couple of marketing scientists because we really believe in this. We want to invest in this area. But the truth is we're, we're still in our, a little bit in our exploratory phase. We have products and services we can offer. But this solution we've got to, we've now got a raft of case studies of having worked with you know, four or five big brands over the last year or two. And the answer is always somewhat different. And it just gives you that great perspective to be able to look at different ways in which we can prove that and to varying degrees we can prove it. But I think the win is that we really are now starting to bring sponsorship into that discussion around other channels and actually start to isolate sponsorship's contribution to brand metrics, but also sponsorship's contribution to business impact as well. And that's ultimately what brands will use to determine, and, and broadcasters and others, to determine whether their investment in a property is worthwhile. And ultimately, one of the impacts of COVID is going to be, at least for the short to medium term, is that brands and other spenders of money are going to be very tight. They're going to only spend where they have to and only spend on things that they have a you know, certain degree of confidence will work. And I think that's why we need to take sponsorship into these conversations so we can show them that, look, this is what sponsorship can do for you. This is why you should invest your money rather than some of these slightly sidebar types of conversations we tend to have. We went inside Burger King sponsorship of Stephen EGFC with Alex Tunbridge, Chief Executive in Episode 89. This next question is going to be a bit of a long one as I collect my thoughts and, and sort of phrase it for you. So so bear with me, but I want to pick up on that point around you having to hold your nerve because you knew what was going on and there was some questions around kits and sponsors and things like that because Burger King themselves have said that when the sponsorship was announced that many thought sponsoring Stevenage FC at the bottom of England football's fourth division at the time, that it was a bad investment and in a media release on your own website, it said, quote, Burger King's global head of brand marketing, Marcelo Pasqua, said, we are thrilled to support Stevenage Football Club over the next two seasons. Over 265 million people play football around the world and the passion for the game is unparalleled. At Burger King, we share that passion, not only for the big teams, but also for the smaller ones that are poised for something big, end quote. That would have been read by many as a pretty bland quote about a new sponsorship. Football's big. Everyone's passionate about it. We want to support football. It's kind of stock standard stuff. But the line, poised for something big, now seems prophetic. You couldn't give too much away about the long game, as you said before. So what did you say to people when they asked, why would Burger King sponsor Stevenage FC? So we knew at the time that the goal of Burger King working with us was to turn us from a small team in the real world to the biggest team online. We always had a very clear understanding of that objective. I think on a local level, and, and certainly in the short term, I think when people were saying to us, well, why would Burger King sponsor Stevenage? We'd kind of had those uh, moments that had taken place in the months before, bringing a world title fight to the stadium, changing our brand. For us, it was all about as a small club that is in a very highly saturated area in England in terms of football clubs, particularly around London, um, Tottenham's very close to us, Arsenal, Watford, Luton Town, all of which have had very good seasons recently, expanded their stadiums, brought in new season ticket holders. We have to find a way to um, be slightly different. We have to, we have to know what that niche is. 
So for us, we'd come up with this mantra of, right, well, let's be the club that tries and does things a little bit differently. Let's be a club that's connected to its community. And let's be a club that anybody can have access to. Anybody can speak to a player. Anybody can speak to myself. Anybody can speak to the chairman. Let's really play on that. And uh, for us, we, we felt it was really important that we bought, we improved our commercial outputs as a club. It was possibly some low-hanging fruit that we could go and get. And also we had to change people's perception of us. And so how we sold it to the supporters was that by bringing a blue chip company, it was the first step in us changing the perception that other people had of us on a local level and on a national level and eventually on an international level. Now that has probably gone full circle now. We're probably equally as held on a, an international and national level in some sectors as we are on a local level here. So I think one of the key things for us has been the interaction we've received since the, the campaign from people all over the world, from fellow peers at other football clubs to other sports, NFL, NHL, NBA clubs, all getting in contact with us, recognising what we've done. So I think from a local level now, people are starting to understand that we were prepared to be bold. We were prepared to take that leap of faith. And um, now those local clubs want to come and get involved with us and, and, and ride that wave that we're on. So it's, it's a real positive as well for the local businesses and local community. We were joined by Scott Tilton from Hook It in episode 90, who took us inside data and chasing sponsorship value. You mentioned some of those brands that were surprising not to be on that list. So there's maybe a suggestion that they aren't getting the value out of their sponsorships that they set out to get. And Hook It recently released a white paper titled Chasing Sponsorship Value. What sort of conversations or challenges led you and the team to create that resource? And what value did you set out to deliver to the market by producing that white paper? We really did it in conjunction with the 50 most marketed brands. So, you know, our whole focus here and our reason for being is to, you know, really support brands to help them evolve their sponsorship strategies and ultimately make their sponsorships more effective. You know, and the goal of the report was really to dive into the data and and keep in mind, uh, this was really just a view of looking at social. And, um, you know, so we looked at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, uh, Weibo, VK, so there's a pretty broad, you know, it's a big piece of the pie and an important piece of the pie, but it's not everything. So I think what it really highlighted was that uh, not all brands are in- entirely focused on social at this point. It is really the the number one driver of activation strategies. And it's become, I think, as a result of COVID with sports being shut down or events being shut down, it really put a huge microscope on the importance of social media and digital media and how you can engage fans in a in a time when there's no sporting events. So, um, so yeah, so the goal was really just to dive into the data and really understand, you know, how has the pandemic impacted sports sponsorship strategies, the activation strategies, and just who was getting value, you know, when you look at 12 months and half of which was normal times and half of which was COVID times, you know, um, just what did the data show? And uh, so it was just a really fascinating view to really dive into it. Tom Rishbeth took us inside Football Australia's commercial program in episode 96. Commonwealth Bank's commitment to women's football supports Football Australia's Legacy 23 plan. Tom, tell us about what that plan is and and how much of an important element that is in attracting partners at the moment. So Legacy 23 is a a plan that we launched at Parliament House in Canberra, which is the capital city of Australia, earlier this year. What it is is Football Australia's plan to ensure that we realise long-term benefits from co-hosting the the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2023. I think as there's a lot of commentary around what major events can do for 
can do for a country from an economic standpoint, from a tourism perspective, from a, a participation in sport perspective. But you know, often legacy is something that's thought about relatively soon prior to the event or, or it's something that you know, we'll deal with that post the events left. And there's been a lot of commentary around the cost of hosting mega events around the world. And I think for us as the governing body, again, FIFA is, is the organisation that's ultimately tasked with delivering that event. But for us, we can start planning now to make sure that we capitalise on those you know, few weeks in 2023 to ensure the long-term growth of the sport. So Legacy 23 is essentially designed around five pillars around participation. The biggest goal that we've got is reaching gender parity and participation for women and, and men in football by 2027. And we know that having all eyes on the sport in 2023 can help accelerate that goal. You know, the second pillar is community facilities. So improving football grounds, giving more people opportunity to play around the country. There's a leadership and development pillar, which is all around supporting women and girls through educational programs to ensure we've got greater representation in key roles, whether that be coaching, referees, administration around the country as well. There's a diplomacy and, and national engagement pillar and finally a, a high performance pillar as well, obviously you know, getting more opportunities for our national teams to, to play on the world stage. So what that plan does is set out a whole range of programs and initiatives that we've we've costed out. The, the plans are there and then there's a there's a stage program of an ask for for government funding. There's opportunities for commercial partners to get involved, for philanthropy as well. And again, for us, it's all about starting the work right now to make sure that the game grows between now, 2023, and for the next 15 to 20 years beyond that. Yeah, I think that vision is something that we're seeing a lot of interest in. I think it's helpful to be able to have a clearly defined set of objectives, some of which we can clearly enumerate. As I said, you know, we are very bullish and we came out well before we won the rights to co-host the World Cup that we wanted to reach gender parity by 2027. I think some of those goals and aims and objectives are, are things that you know, commercial partners like to be able to attack attach themselves to, there are things that enable them to be part of the the genuine narrative of helping grow the sport and helping support our community. And so I think having something in writing that we're going to deliver, that we've got a framework around already, has been really helpful for, for me and the team to go out to market with and say, look, we're on this journey. We are going to achieve these goals. We need to do it regardless. But with your support, if you come on board, you can help us get there faster and you can also be part of that narrative genuinely as well. And we're seeing a lot of interest in that. Creativity and sponsorship was the topic in episode 97 with Misha Sher from Mediacom. As we've established, digital is becoming increasingly important. And, and as I said, COVID is accelerating that. Are there any trends that you're seeing across the use of imagery versus video in sponsored content at the moment? Yes, absolutely. I think we've seen a huge acceleration in, in the rise of video content. And that's for good reason, because it's far more effective than imagery. As a matter of fact, I believe video content is far more engaging than any, any type of content. And some of, the, some of the data that we looked at recently show that I think on, on platforms like Instagram, and this is, by the way, this is pretty consistent across the board. It might not be exactly the same, but let's say if you look at if you look at something like Instagram, which is one of the bigger platforms where people interact, video content attracts three times more engagement than any other type of content. So 
it's uh, you know it's what people want. It's that's why there's so much investment now in in you know across agencies and and brands into you know into video content because that's what people um, that's what that's what ultimately engages. So yes, if the question is 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 it more effective than than imagery, for example, then absolutely. In episode 98, Steve Waitley from Nielsen Sports took us inside best practice fan data and use. What's your general sense then of how the market sees fan data at the moment, particularly in terms of how it's maybe changed over the past 10 years or so as our clearly our sophistication in being able to gather and interpret the data that we gather has improved because there is always lots of commentary about how important data is, but I am never sure personally how much of this is is really just lip service for want of a better phrase as opposed to real deep understanding and, and good use of the data. Over that 10-year horizon that you mentioned, I don't think there's ever been a bigger discrepancy in the sophistication of both rights holders and brands when it comes to sponsorship data. And that's, I think that's because there's now some really advanced ways of understanding fans like the FanLinks data set. But not everyone is interested or willing to invest the money to actually reap the benefits from that deeper understanding. And so what we're seeing now is some partnerships are still all the way back at being a chair's choice, while other partnerships are relying on significant fan data, both in that selection phase of the partnerships, as well as the ongoing measurement of the partnership. And rights holders are getting more savvy. So obviously not all rights holders, but we do have, you know, Nielsen have got lots of clubs across, you know, AFL, NRL, NBL, Super Netball, BBL, et cetera, using this FanLinks data to give them a real edge in market when they're trying to both retain their current partners and also secure new partners. There's, I think, a really good example that demonstrates how that actually looks in reality. So we know a situation where there was a particular sponsor who is now with one of the AFL clubs and they decided they wanted to be with an AFL club based in Victoria. So that's one of 10 AFL clubs. So what they did was they basically communicated to all those clubs, hey, we want to department with one of you, but you need to tell us why it's you and not one of the other 10 clubs in Victoria. And what actually happened was one of the smallest clubs in Victoria won that deal because they were one of the early adopters of this FanLinks data set and were able to tell a really compelling story specifically about that consumer category and also down to that specific brand as to why their audience was the best fit for that particular partnership. So it was really powerful for them in securing that that new partnership that you can you can see running around on the field now. I think something else as well, so that's kind of the rights holders perspective and we also understand probably the brand perspective there as well. So we did some research with the industry recently in our sponsorship outlook report. And what brands are clearly telling us is that they're demanding better data now from rights holders. So we did some research and it's really clear that they want more tailored proposals with more relevant information on why the property is a good fit for them specifically. So some brands are now actually getting quite smart and also using this data to proactively assess the entire market to find the best fit audience, not just reactively assessing opportunities that come across their desk, which is a really interesting evolution in in how brands are looking to partner. In episode 101, we continued our roundtables looking at the future of sponsorship and Alice Larkworthy, Senior Partner Services Manager at Arsenal FC, joined the show for the second time in 2021. Lifting up the focus, I then asked, what's the biggest challenge facing the sponsorship industry in the next 
five to 10 years, a nice big broad one for them there? I think it'll be finding space in the crowd, right? I think we sort of, there's so many brands out there in, in a great way in my field specifically that want to be involved in that sort of sports sponsorship space that we as rights holders and agencies, you know, a lot of, I guess, pressure on us to identify where those gaps are and what partners can kind of come in to exploit that. We've moved to a really kind of digitally focused world over the last 18 months for obvious reasons, which is great. But then again, there's only so many types of a certain piece of content that can go out on a week that, you know, a brand would actually get the exposure that they want. So what other areas can we exploit? And I think even though that digital focus has been at the forefront of everyone's mind, where we're at now is as people are still craving getting on site at events again, right? And being part of that atmosphere and being a part of that family. So it's important not to neglect that element of it. So I think it's sort of going back to having that holistic thinking in terms of that wider sponsorship deal. What are the touch points? What are we kind of trying to achieve at it? It's not just going to be one channel, right? And who are we talking to? What actually are the areas are we going to hit them hit the most? Which, you know, everyone's going to be doing. Everyone's going to be finding that 1% difference. So again, it's kind of just making sure that we're finding that space. We're talking to the right people and that the brand is actually sort of getting the breathing room and kind of the visibility that they're looking for. Joseph Borrell took us inside Valencia CF in episode 103. So Joseph, the sponsorship landscape, in terms of what sponsors were receiving in partnerships, before COVID came along, it was pretty set or it was pretty stock standard. There wasn't that much innovation happening. But as I said, COVID came along and and digital was really accelerated. It was starting to build pre-COVID. But once COVID hit, it, it really did come to the fore. And of course, things you mentioned it earlier before, like fan tokens have really taken off over the last sort of 12 to 18 months. But now that we are pretty much on the other side of COVID and we're starting to get back to business as usual pretty much, what does what brands are requesting from you, from rights holders, what are they requesting and talking about in their sponsorships? What does it look like in terms of the assets and the rights that they are seeking from you? One of the things that um, I've seen more and more is um, that it has changed completely is when negotiating the contract. So what do we put in the contract? Prior to COVID, the force majeure clause in the contracts was almost completely overseen or we uh, hardly paid any attention to it. And now we spend so much time on it. We spend so much time on analyzing and measuring uh, the value of every single asset that we're going to put in the contract because we want to understand how we're going to compensate this, how we're going to, what uh, what amount of money going to give back in case something happens, in case the competition ends, in case another pandemic comes in. So this is something that is being completely new and I'm seeing it. And we're spending so much time when writing the contracts in that sense. The other thing that I'm seeing is obviously everything needs to be measured. Partners, brands want assets that can be measured. And one of the examples that I can put you is the type of relationship that we have with Cecil, that is a payment method in the buy now pay later industry. We have meetings with them every single week. And I will say from there, we spend only 20% of the marketing side of things. We spend 80% of the time in understanding how we're going to increase that share that they have within the payment methods in our e-commerce. So it shows you that brands are looking at things that are not that related to brand building anymore, is which asset can have an impact on their businesses. 
and sponsorship professionals need to be focusing on understanding these other businesses as well. So not only on, on, on traditional sponsorship. That's another thing. And the third thing is, I think brands are helping, uh, at, at trying to get help from right holders on the digital marketing side of things. So instead of me using the media budget that I have, how are you gonna help me to use this media budget efficiently? Do you have the capabilities as a right holder? This is the conversation that we're having at the moment. And uh, especially now, for example, in Spain, that we're losing a massive revenue stream from betting companies, it's a time for sponsorship professionals to uh, evolve and be able to understand other industries and create new assets for these new industries as well. As I said at the start of the show, one thing I had been thinking about for some time is creating this exact curated list of my personal favorite insights or pieces of advice from our guests over the years. I hope that it becomes a little bit of an anchor or touch point for those of you who have lots of sponsorship industry experience in a sense that you can always come back and revisit it and kind of get centered or validated or inspired again with the work that you're undertaking. And of course, it's going to be a handy resource for me when those who are looking to move into or have just started in the sponsorship industry get in touch and ask for a little bit of advice or a point in the right direction. I don't know about you, but I totally loved hearing some of those voices again. It brought back a lot of nice memories and it just simply reminded me and and also humbles me that we have so many amazing people right around the world in the sponsorship industry who so generously give up their time to come on the show. Let's make no mistake about it. They are very busy people, but they do make the time to come on the show and share so that the listeners, you can learn. And I often think how lucky I am that I get to speak to them. If you'd like a shout out or just to connect and say hi, then I'd totally love to hear from you. I do get a real kick out of hearing from you. So please do connect with me on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. That's a wrap for episode 110. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, eBooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.